Section 7 of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Masters Plutarchus, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Cicero, Chapters 38 to 49. 38. But when Caesar set out for Spain, Cicero at once sailed to Pompey. The rest of Pompey's followers were glad to see him, but when Cato saw him, he privately blamed him much for attaching himself to Pompey. In his own case, Cato said, it was not honorable to abandon the line of public policy which he had chosen from the beginning, but Cicero, though he was of more service to his country and his friends, if he remained at home without taking sides, and accommodated himself to the issue of events, without any reason and under no compulsion, had made himself an enemy of Caesar, and had come thither to share in their great danger. By these words the purpose of Cicero was upset, as well as by the fact that Pompey made no great use of him. But he was himself to blame for this, since he made no denial that he was sorry he had come, made light of Pompey's preparations, and showed a lurking displeasure at his plans, and did not refrain from jests and witty remarks about his comrades in arms. Nay, although he himself always went about in the camp without a smile and scowling, still he made others laugh in spite of themselves. And it will be well to give a few instances of this also. When Domitius then was advancing to a post of command, a man who was no soldier, with the remark that he was gentle in his disposition and prudent. Why then, said Cicero, do you not keep him as a guardian of your children? And when certain ones were praising Theophanes the lesbian, who was prefect of engineers in the camp, because he had given excellent consolation to the Rhodians on the loss of their fleet, what a great blessing it is, said Cicero, to have a Greek as prefect. Again, when Caesar was successful for the most part, and in a way was laying siege to them, Lentulus said he had heard that Caesar's friends were gloomy, to which Cicero replied, You mean that they are ill-disposed to Caesar. And when a certain Marcius, who had recently come from Italy, spoke of a report which prevailed in Rome that Pompey was besieged, And then, said Cicero, did you sail off that you might see with your own eyes and believe? Again, after the defeat, when Nonius said they ought to have good hopes, since seven eagles were left in the camp of Pompey? Your advice would be good, said Cicero, if we were at war with jackdaws. And when Labienus, insisting on certain oracles, said that Pompey must prevail? Yes, said Cicero, this is the generalship that has now cost us our camp. 39. However, after the battle at Pharsalus, in which Cicero took no part because of illness, had been fought, and Pompey was in flight, Cato, who had a considerable army and a large fleet at Dyrrachium, asked Cicero to take the command in accordance with custom and because of his superior consular rank. But Cicero rejected the command and was altogether averse to sharing in the campaign, whereupon he came near being killed, for the young Pompey and his friends called him a traitor and drew their swords upon him, and that would have been the end of him, had not Cato interposed, and with difficulty rescued him and sent him away from the camp. So, 
Cicero put in at Brundisium and tarried there, waiting for Caesar, who was delayed by his affairs in Asia and Egypt. But when word was brought that Caesar had landed at Tarentum and was coming round by land from there to Brundisium, Cicero hastened to meet him, being not altogether despondent, but feeling shame to test in the presence of many witnesses the temper of a man who was an enemy and victorious. However, there was no need that he should do or say anything unworthy of himself, for Caesar, when he saw him approaching far in advance of the rest, got down and embraced him, and journeyed on for many furlongs conversing with him alone. And after this he continued to show him honor and kindness, so that in his reply to the encomium upon Cato, which Cicero wrote, he praised Cicero's eloquence and his life, as most resembling that of Pericles and Theramenes. Now, the discourse of Cicero was entitled Cato, and that of Caesar, Anti-Cato. It is said also that when Quintus Ligarius was under prosecution because he had been one of the enemies of Caesar, and Cicero was his advocate, Caesar said to his friends, What is to prevent our hearing a speech from Cicero after all this while, since Ligarius has long been adjudged a villain and an enemy? But when Cicero had begun to speak, and was moving his hearers beyond measure, and his speech, as it proceeded, showed varying pathos and amazing grace, Caesar's face often changed color, and it was manifest that all the emotions of his soul were stirred. And at last, when the orator touched upon the struggles at Pharsalus, he was so greatly affected that his body shook, and he dropped from his hand some of his documents. At any rate, he acquitted Ligarius under compulsion. 40. After this, when the government had been changed to a monarchy, Cicero abstained from public affairs, and devoted his time to those of the young men who wished to study philosophy, and mainly from his intimacy with these, since they were of the highest birth and standing, he once more very influential in the state. He made it his business also to compose and translate philosophical dialogues, and to render into Latin the several terms of dialectics and natural philosophy, for he it was, as they say, who first, or principally, provided Latin names for Fantasia, Syncatathesis, Epoche, and Catalepsis, as well as for Atomon, Amiris, Canon, and many others like these, contriving partly by metaphors and partly by new and fitting terms to make them intelligible and familiar. His facility in verse-making, too, he employed to divert himself. It is sad, indeed, that when he applied himself to such work, he would make five hundred verses in a night. During this time, then, he lived for the most part at his country seat in Tusculum, and he used to write to his friends that he was living the life of Laertius, either jesting, as was his wont, or because his ambition filled him with a desire for public activity and made him dissatisfied with the turn things had taken. He rarely went down to the city, and then only to pay court to Caesar, and he was foremost among those who advocated Caesar's honors and were eager to be ever saying something new about him and his measures. Of this sort is what he said about the statues of Pompey. These Caesar ordered to be set up again after they had been thrown down and taken away, and they were set up again. What Cicero said was that, by this act of generosity, Caesar did indeed set up the statues of Pompey, but firmly planted his own also. 41. He purposed, as we are told, 
to write a comprehensive history of his native country, combining with it many Greek details, and introducing there all the tales and myths which he had collected. But he was prevented by many public affairs which were contrary to his wishes, and by many private troubles, most of which seemed to have been of his own choosing. For, in the first place, he divorced his wife Terentia, because he had been neglected by her during the war, so that he set out in lack of the necessary means for his journey, and even when he came back again to Italy, did not find her considerate of him. For she did not come to him herself, although he tarried a long time at Brundisium, and when her daughter, a young girl, made the long journey thither, she supplied her with no fitting escort and with no means. Nay, she actually stripped and emptied Cicero's house of all that it contained, besides incurring many large debts. These, indeed, are the most plausible reasons given for the divorce. Terentia, however, denied that these were the reasons, and Cicero himself made her defense a telling one by marrying shortly afterwards a maiden. This he did, as Terentia asserted, out of love for her youthful beauty. But as Tyro, Cicero's freedman, has written, to get means for the payment of his debts. For the girl was very wealthy, and Cicero had been left her trustee and had charge of her property. So, since he owed many tens of thousands, he was persuaded by his friends and relatives to marry the girl, old as he was, and to get rid of his creditors by using her money. But Antony, who spoke of the marriage in his replies to Cicero's Philippics, says that he cast out of doors the wife with whom he had grown old, and at the same time makes witty jibes upon the stay-at-home habits of Cicero, who was, he said, unfit for business or military service. Not long after Cicero's marriage, his daughter died in childbirth at the house of Lentulus, to whom she had been married after the death of Piso, her former husband. His friends came together from all quarters to comfort Cicero, but his grief at his misfortune was excessive, so that he actually divorced the wife he had wedded, because she was thought to be pleased at the death of Talia. 42. Such then were Cicero's domestic affairs. But in the design that was forming against Caesar he took no part, although he was one of the closest companions of Brutus, and was thought to be distressed at the present, and to long for the old state of affairs more than anybody else. But the conspirators feared his natural disposition as being deficient in daring, and his time of life, in which courage fails, the strongest natures. And so, when the deed had been accomplished by the partisans of Brutus and Cassius, and the friends of Caesar were combining against the perpetrators of it, and it was feared that the city would again be plunged into civil wars, Antony, as consul, convened the Senate, and said a few words about concord, while Cicero, after a lengthy speech appropriate to the occasion, persuaded the Senate to imitate the Athenians, and decree an amnesty for the attack upon Caesar, and to assign provinces to Cassius and Brutus. But none of these things came to pass. For when the people, who of themselves were strongly moved to pity, saw Caesar's body carried through the forum, and when Antony showed them the garments drenched with blood and pierced everywhere with the swords, they went mad with rage, and sought for the murderers in the forum, and ran to their houses with firebrands in order to set them ablaze. For this danger the conspirators were prepared beforehand, and so escaped it. 
but expecting others many and great, they forsook the city. 43. At once, then, Antony was highly elated, and all men were fearful that he would make himself sole ruler, and Cicero most fearful of all, for Antony saw that Cicero's power in the state was reviving, and knew that he was attached to Brutus and his party, and was therefore disturbed at his presence in the city. And besides, they had previously been somewhat suspicious of one another, because of the marked difference in their lives. Fearing these things, Cicero at first was inclined to sail to Syria with Dolabella as his legate. But the consul's elect to succeed Antony, Hertius and Pansa, who were good men and admirers of Cicero, begged him not to desert them, and undertook to put down Antony if Cicero would remain at Rome. So Cicero, who neither distrusted nor trusted them altogether, let Dolabella go without him, and after agreeing with Hertius and Pansa to spend the summer at Athens, and to come back again when they had assumed office, set off by himself. But there was some delay about his voyage, and, as is often the case, new and unexpected reports came from Rome, to the effect that Antony had undergone a wonderful change, and was doing and administering everything to please the Senate, and that matters needed only Cicero's presence to assume the best possible complexion. He, therefore, blamed himself for his excessive caution, and turned back again to Rome. And in his first expectations he was not disappointed, for a great crowd of people, moved with joy and longing for him, poured forth to meet him, and almost a day's time was consumed in the friendly greetings given him at the gates and as he entered the city. On the following day, however, when Antony convened the Senate and invited him to be present, Cicero did not come, but kept his bed, pretending to be indisposed from fatigue. The truth, however, seemed to be that he was afraid of a plot against him, in consequence of some suspicion and of information that had unexpectedly come to him on the road. But Antony was indignant at the implication, and sent soldiers with orders to bring Cicero or burn down his house. But since many opposed this course, and entreated him to desist, he did so, after merely taking sureties. And thenceforth they kept up this attitude, quietly ignoring one another, and mutually on their guard, until a young Caesar came from Apollonia, assumed the inheritance of the elder Caesar, and engaged in a dispute with Antony concerning the twenty-five million drachmas which Antony was detaining from the estate. After this, Philip, who had married the mother, and Marcellus, who had married the sister of the young Caesar, came with the young man to Cicero, and made a compact that Cicero should give Caesar the influence derived from his eloquence and political position, both in the Senate and before the people, and that Caesar should give Cicero the security to be derived from his wealth and his armed forces. For already the young man had about him many of the soldiers who had served under the elder Caesar. It was thought, too, that there was a stronger reason why Cicero readily accepted the young man's friendship, for it would appear that while Pompey and Caesar were still living, Cicero dreamed that someone invited the sons of the senators to the capital, on the ground that Jupiter was going to appoint one of their number ruler of Rome, 
and that the citizens eagerly ran and stationed themselves about the temple, while the youths, in their purple-bordered togas, seated themselves there in silence. Suddenly the door of the temple opened, and one by one the youths rose and walked round past the god, who revealed them all, and sent them away sorrowing. But when this young Caesar advanced into his presence, the god stretched out his hand and said, O Romans, ye shall have an end of civil wars when this youth has become your ruler. By such a dream as this, they say, Cicero had impressed upon him the appearance of the youth, and retained it distinctly, but did not know him. The next day, however, as he was going down to the campus martius, the youths, who had just finished exercising there, were coming away, and the youth of his dream was seen by Cicero for the first time, and Cicero, amazed, inquired who his parents were. Now, his father was Octavius, a man of no great prominence, but his mother was Atia, a daughter of Caesar's sister. For this reason Caesar, who had no children of his own, willed his property and his family name to him. After this, it is said, Cicero took pains to converse with the youth when they met, and the youth welcomed his kind attentions. And indeed it happened that he was born during Cicero's consulship. 45. These then were the reasons that were mentioned. But it was Cicero's hatred for Antony in the first place, and then his natural craving for honor, that attached him to the young Caesar, since he thought to add Caesar's power to his own political influence. And indeed, the young man carried his court to him so far as actually to call him father. At this, Brutus was very angry, and in his letters to Atticus attacked Cicero, saying that, in paying court to Caesar through fear of Antony, he was plainly not obtaining liberty for his country, but wooing a kind master for himself. However, Brutus took up Cicero's son, who was studying philosophy at Athens, gave him a command, and achieved many successes through his instrumentality. Cicero's power in the city reached its greatest height at this time, and since he could do what he pleased, he raised a successful faction against Antony, drove him out of the city, and sent out the two consuls, Hurtius and Pansa, to wage war upon him, while he persuaded the senate to vote Caesar the lictors and insignia of a praetor, on the ground that he was fighting in defense of the country. But after Antony had been defeated, and both consuls having died after the battle, the forces had united under Caesar, the Senate became afraid of a young man who had enjoyed such brilliant good fortune, and endeavored by honors and gifts to call his troops away from him, and to circumscribe his power, on the ground that, there was no need of defensive armies now that Antony had taken to flight. Under these circumstances, Caesar took alarm, and secretly sent messengers to Cicero, begging and urging him to obtain the consulship for them both, but to manage affairs as he himself thought best, after assuming the office, and to direct in all things a youthful colleague who only craved name and fame. And Caesar himself admitted afterwards that it was the fear of having his troops disbanded, and the danger of finding himself left alone, which led him to make use, in an emergency, of Cicero's love of power, by inducing him to sue for the consulship with his cooperation and assistance in the canvas. 46. Here, indeed, more than at any other time, 
Cicero was led on and cheated, an old man by a young man. He assisted Caesar in his canvass and induced the Senate to favor him. For this he was blamed by his friends at the time, and shortly afterwards he perceived that he had ruined himself and betrayed the liberty of the people. For after the young man had waxed strong and obtained the consulship, he gave Cicero the go-by, and after making friends with Antony and Lepidus, and uniting his forces with theirs, he divided a sovereignty with them, like any other piece of property. And the list was made out by them of men who must be put to death, more than two hundred in number. The proscription of Cicero, however, caused most strife in their debates, Antony consenting to no terms unless Cicero should be the first man to be put to death, Lepidus siding with Antony, and Caesar holding out against them both. They held secret meetings by themselves near the city of Bononia for three days, coming together in a place at some distance from the camps and surrounded by a river. It is said that for the first two days Caesar kept up his struggle to save Cicero, but yielded on the third day and gave him up. The terms of their mutual concessions were as follows. Caesar was to abandon Cicero, Lepidus his brother, Paulus, and Antony, Lucius Caesar, who was his uncle on the mother's side. So far did anger and fury lead them to renounce their human sentiments, or rather, they showed that no wild beast is more savage than men when his passion is supplemented by power. 47. While this was going on, Cicero was at his own country seat in Tusculum, having his brother with him. But when they learned of the prescriptions, they determined to move to Astura, a place of Cicero's on the sea-coast, and from there to sail to Brutus in Macedonia, for already a report was current that he was in force there. So they were carried along in litters, being worn out with grief, and on the way they would halt, and with their litters placed side by side would lament to one another. But Quintus was the more dejected, and began to reflect upon his destitute condition, for he said that he had taken nothing from home. Nay, Cicero too had scanty provision for the journey. It was better, then, he said, that Cicero should press on in his flight, but that he himself should get what he wanted from home and then hasten after him. This they decided to do, and after embracing one another and weeping aloud, they parted. So then, Quintus, not many days afterwards, was betrayed by his servants to those who were in search of him, and put to death, together with his son. But Cicero was brought to Astura, and finding a vessel there, he embarked at once and coasted along as far as Circaeum, with the wind in his favor. From there his pilots wished to set sail at once, but Cicero, whether it was that he feared the sea, or had not yet altogether given up his trust in Caesar, went ashore, and traveled along on foot a hundred furlongs in the direction of Rome. But again losing resolution and changing his mind, he went down to the sea at Astura, and there he spent the night in dreadful and desperate calculations. He actually made up his mind to enter Caesar's house by stealth, to slay himself upon the hearth, and so to fasten upon Caesar an avenging demon. But a fear of tortures drove him from this course also. Then, revolving in his mind many confused and contradictory purposes, he put himself in the hands of his servants to be taken by sea to Caeta, 
where he had lands and an agreeable retreat in summer-time, when the breath of the Etesian winds is most pleasant. The place has also a temple of Apollo, a little above the sea. From thence a flock of crows flew with loud clamor towards the vessel of Cicero, as it was rowed towards land, and alighting on either end of the sail-yard, some cawed, and other pecked at the ends of the ropes, and everybody thought that the omen was bad. Nevertheless, Cicero landed, and going to his villa, lay down to rest. Then most of the crows perched themselves about the window, cawing tumultuously, but one of them flew down upon the couch where Cicero lay with muffled head, and with its beak, little by little, tried to remove the garment from his face. The servants, on seeing this, rebuked themselves for waiting to be spectators of their master's murder, while wild beasts came to his help and cared for him in his undeserved misfortune, but they themselves did nothing in his defense. So, partly by entreaty and partly by force, they took him and carried him in his litter towards the sea. 48. But meantime his assassins came to the villa, Herennius and Centurion, and Popilius a tribune, who had once been prosecuted for parricide and defended by Cicero, and they had helpers. After they had broken in the door, which they found closed, Cicero was not to be seen, and the inmates said they knew not where he was. Then, we are told, a youth who had been liberally educated by Cicero, and who was a freedman of Cicero's brother Quintus, Philologus by name, told the tribune that the litter was being carried through the wooded and shady walks towards the sea. The tribune, accordingly, taking a few helpers with him, ran round towards the exit, but Herennius hasted on the run through the walks, and Cicero, perceiving him, ordered the servants to set a litter down where they were. Then he himself, clasping his chin with his left hand, as was his wont, looked steadfastly at his slayers, his head all squalid and unkempt, and his face wasted with anxiety, so that most of those that stood by covered their faces while Herennius was slaying him. For he stretched his neck forth from the litter, and was slain, being then in his sixty-fourth year. Herennius cut off his head by Antony's command and his hands, the hands with which he wrote the Philippics, for Cicero himself entitled his speeches against Antony Philippics, and to this day the documents are called Philippics. 49. When Cicero's extremities were brought to Rome, it chanced that Antony was conducting an election, but when he heard of their arrival and saw them, he cried out, Now let our prescriptions have an end. Then, he ordered the head and hands to be placed over the ship's beaks on the rostra, a sight that made the Romans shudder, for they thought they saw there not the face of Cicero, but an image of the soul of Antony. However, he showed at least one sentiment of fair dealings in the case, when he handed over Philologus to Pomponia, the wife of Quintus. And she, having got the man into her power, besides other dreadful punishments which she inflicted upon him, forced him to cut off his own flesh bit by bit and roast it, and then to eat it. This indeed is what some of the historians say. But Cicero's own freedman, Tyro, makes no mention at all of the treachery of Philologus. I learned that Caesar, a long time after this, 
paid a visit to one of his daughter's sons, and the boy, since he had in his hands a book of Cicero's, was terrified, and sought to hide it in his gown. But Caesar saw it, and took the book, and read a great part of it as he stood, and then gave it back to the youth, saying, A learned man, my child, a learned man, and the lover of his country. Moreover, as soon as he had finally defeated Antony, and when he was himself consul, he chose Cicero's son as his colleague in the office, and it was in his consulship that the Senate took down the statues of Antony, made void the other honors that had been paid him, and decreed besides that no Antony should have the name of Marcus. Thus the heavenly powers devolved upon the family of Cicero the final steps in the punishment of Antony. End of section 7